It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 847 for the 1st of September, 2023. This week, buying a new computer includes some of the same processes and decisions needed when buying a new car. And it's important to base the buying decision on facts, not emotions. In short circuits, sometimes antique computer users, like me, say old DOS computers seemed faster, faster than today's Windows machines. That's not entirely inaccurate, and the Windows Task Manager helps us understand why. Safe mode is useful when your computer has a problem, even if it can't boot normally, but getting into safe mode is a little more complicated than it used to be. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2003, my preferred email client was The Bat, a remarkably advanced email application from Moldova that continued to be my favorite for many years. Buying a new computer isn't unlike buying a new car. Define your needs, identify suitable models, and consider useful options. Only then is it time to make the purchase. At one time, the best advice was to first identify the software you needed to run and use that information to determine what kind of computer to buy. Well, that's less useful today because most applications run on both Windows and Mac OS computers, and many of them run on Linux systems too. And there might actually be nothing to decide, because those who have used macOS computers for a long time generally should stick with Apple. Those who have used Windows for years probably should stick with Microsoft. Likewise, for those who use one of the hundreds of Linux variants, stick with what you know. I know people who have switched from Windows to the Mac OS, and often they've been unhappy. That's because things don't work the way they've become accustomed to. Mac OS users who find the need to use a Windows computer can have similar issues. Switching to or from Linux is equally fraught. So I'm really a big fan of just sticking with what you're familiar with. You'll have more decisions to make with a Windows computer. That can be good or bad. But some of the basic decisions are the same regardless of the computer type. Because there are more decisions to make with a Windows system, that's what I'll describe here. Your first decision probably will be whether the computer will be a desktop or a notebook system. How important is portability? Then think about how you'll use the computer. Will you use it mainly to browse the web, pay bills online, send email, and visit social networking sites? Or will you organize, edit, and share digital photos, watch streaming video, and work with complex spreadsheets and documents? Maybe you want to get into video production and high-end video editing, or if you're an intense gamer. More complex and demanding tasks call for more processing power, more memory, and more disk storage. Many big manufacturers and hundreds of smaller shops build custom desktop computers. Not as many companies build notebooks, so you'll be limited to probably fewer than a dozen, such as Acer, Dell, Hewlett-Packard, Lenovo, Microsoft, and Toshiba. Notebook computers are portable, but desktop systems cost less for the same features, and they can be upgraded a lot more easily. 
No manufacturer is inherently better than any other. All of them manufacture powerful high-end computers, and most of them also make limited low-end computers. Specs are much more important than brand. If portability is essential or space is limited, a notebook computer is probably the best choice. Otherwise, a desktop system is likely to be less expensive, easier to maintain, and more powerful. The central processing unit or CPU runs the show, and I usually buy a little bit more processing power and RAM than I really need immediately. That's because I know I'll need more later. A word processor in the late 1980s likely consumed less than 100K of memory and ran well on an Intel 8088 processor. Today's Microsoft Word easily consumes 200 megabytes of memory, and it'll be sluggish on low-end processors. Browsers are memory hogs. As I was working on this article, Firefox and Vivaldi were each using more than 2 gigabytes of RAM. That's a lot of memory but the two browsers combined were using less than 1% of the CPU. Today's applications have more features than their predecessors had, and programmers use languages and techniques that make development easier and faster. That's at the cost of creating applications that need far more system resources to run. The two primary manufacturers of CPUs are Intel and AMD. If the computer will be used solely for email and internet browsing, an Intel Core i3 or an AMD Ryzen 3 might be adequate, but the Intel Core i5 or AMD Ryzen 5 will be a better choice for most users. Those who need more power for gaming or photo editing should consider a Core i7 from Intel or the Ryzen 7 from AMD. And for top performance, well, then you're going to check into the Intel Core i9 or the AMD Ryzen 9. Most processor models are offered with different numbers of cores and various operating speeds. More cores and faster speeds mean the computer will run faster. It also means you're going to pay more. An 8-core Intel i9 running at 3.5 GHz will cost around $325, while a 24-core i9 running at 5.8 GHz will cost double that. The best overall price performance will often be the most powerful or second most powerful CPU, with an operating speed one or two steps down from the maximum. That little extra bit of CPU speed is rarely worth the cost. Then we move on to storage. How much disk space you need depends on how much disk space you need. Well, that's the painfully obvious way of saying that your needs are unique. Look at how much disk space you're using right now. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website of my computer. It has six disk drives, internal and external. These are numbered 0 through 5. And there are eight drive letters, C through I and Y, because drives 3 and 4 each have two partitions. Sum the sizes of all the disk drives and the amount of free space. Drive C, for example, on my computer starts with 952 gigabytes, and the unused space is 640 gigabytes. Now, I disregard drive Y because it's used for temporary backup. It has copies of a lot of files that are on the other drives. So the total size of all the working disks on my computer is 10,988 gigabytes. 
Total free space, about 5,216 gigabytes. That means nearly half of the disk space is free, 47% in fact. If half or more of the disk space on your computer is free, you'll need about the same amount of space on your new computer unless your storage requirements will be changing. I have tens of thousands of large digital photographs, about 34,000 audio tracks, not including files used for the production of TechBiter Worldwide, a lot of video files and some entire motion pictures, and more than 168,000 files that represent applications and operating systems downloaded over the past several decades. Your requirements will differ from mine. But the process and guidelines are the same. Try to keep about half of the disk space free and never let free space drop to less than 15%. A disk that's nearly full will be much slower than one with adequate free space. Then consider the type of graphics card you need. Virtually all computers include integrated graphics on the motherboard, but many also have a dedicated graphics processing unit, or GPU. If you do a lot of photo editing or video editing, the GPU is absolutely critical. Likewise, if you play a lot of powerful games. Most of these are made by NVIDIA and AMD, and prices vary a lot. Low-end GPU cards for desktop computers cost less than $100. At the other end of the spectrum, there's the Asus NVIDIA GeForce RTX 4090 at nearly $2,200. Choices for notebook computers will be more limited. The video subsystem you choose may also depend on the number of monitors you want to use, I prefer at least two monitors, even for a notebook computer. And there are some other components to consider. Make sure the computer has enough USB ports for all the devices you need to connect to it, and that the network connections are fast enough to support the speed from your internet service provider. If the computer has too few ports, you might need to purchase a dock for a notebook computer or a port expansion unit for a desktop. Does the computer need an optical drive? Few computers have built-in optical drives these days because software is rarely distributed on physical media. If you use CDs and DVDs, or if you need to create them, you will need an optical drive. These can be built into a desktop system, but most notebook computers do not have an optical drive option, and they can accommodate only one as an external device. Take all the time you need to think about your requirements. That's the best way to ensure that the computer you buy will be one that pleases you for a long time. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. Any time spent waiting on a computer is wasted. That's an old saying that probably dates back almost to the creation of the first computer. With today's powerful hardware, why do computers sometimes seem so slow? 
Computers that ran DOS seemed fast, at least in my memory, but now computers are sometimes annoyingly slow. Why? The most basic reason is that we ask our computers to do more than we used to, a lot more. A DOS computer ran one application at a time, and many applications were written in low-level assembler language. Switching between a word processor and a spreadsheet required shutting down the word processor, inserting a different disk in drive A, and starting the spreadsheet program. Terminate and Stay Resident applications, or TSRs, came along in the 1980s, so more than one application could be in the computer's memory simultaneously, but switching between them was clumsy and frequently caused the computer to crash. Now your computer is probably running hundreds of applications, processes, and services simultaneously, and the computer doesn't crash. Most of the time, anyway. When I was preparing this segment of the podcast, I counted nearly 30 active applications and a nearly untold number of background processes and services. One password, Qdir, Thunderbird to collect mail from seven accounts, the Vivaldi browser with 21 open tabs, OneNote, UltraEdit Studio for writing this article, Beeper, Microsoft PhoneLink, FileZilla, Snagit, Skype, Messenger, MailWasher Pro to monitor six email accounts, FX Sound, Open Hardware Monitor, several Power Toys components, Google Drive, Microsoft OneDrive, Winget UI, CrashPlan, Unchecky, NordVPN, Desktop OK, Break Timer to remind me to stand up occasionally, AeroClock, GoodSync, and Macro Express Pro. Additionally, there are background services such as those for Focusrite audio components, Adobe Creative Cloud, Canon Printer Software, Bluetooth, Windows security, Logitech drivers, and the Windows scheduler. And this list goes on and on and on. The computer is very busy, even if it seems not to be doing anything. Take a look at the Windows Task Manager on your computer. You might find several hundred background processes running, lots of services, many of them started by Windows, and maybe a dozen or more applications that you've added to the Windows boot process or have opened during your current session. Fortunately, computers are pretty good at multitasking, much better than we humans are. Your computer can deal with this kind of load unless the CPU is severely underpowered or the computer has only limited system memory. So, if your computer legitimately seems to be slower than it should be, the task manager can show everything that's running and which applications, processes, or services are consuming the most CPU, memory, disk, and network services. Do you need to run all of the applications that are running? Is each tab that's open in your browser important? If there are applications that are open but you rarely use, you might be able to speed the computer a bit by not opening them until you need them. This is something that's worth review occasionally because any time spent waiting on the computer is wasted. I may have mentioned that. That's actually my justification for keeping a lot of applications open. I prefer a computer that's imperceptibly slower than it might be to having to wait for an application to open. The task manager will help you sort this out, and then you can devise a configuration that works best for you. When a computer is misbehaving, safe mode is helpful in diagnosing the problem and might be instrumental in fixing it. 
Safe mode isn't just a Windows thing, by the way. Mac OS computers have a safe mode. So do computers that run one of the many Linux variants. But I'll be describing safe mode provided by Microsoft. When you start a computer in safe mode, it loads the absolute minimum number of drivers, services, and applications required to run. That makes it useful in determining what's causing a problem. Those whose experience with computers dates back to Windows 95 may remember that pressing F8 during the boot process activates safe mode. Well, at least it used to. Security measures and the move to the unified extensible firmware interface, starting with Windows 8, has essentially eliminated that capability. If your computer still uses the basic input-output system, or BIOS, and has a mechanical hard drive, F8 should still work. Otherwise, it won't. Windows will automatically invoke safe mode if the computer fails to boot three consecutive times. On the fourth attempt, Windows enters automatic repair mode and attempts to diagnose the problem for you. Click Advanced Options, Troubleshoot, Advanced Options again, Startup Settings, Restart, and when the computer restarts, you'll see two safe mode options, Safe Mode and Safe Mode with Networking. When the computer has significant problems but is still able to boot, you can invoke Safe Mode on Windows 11 by opening Settings and typing Safe Mode into the search panel, then choosing Change Advanced Startup Options. Before moving on to Safe Mode, which you'll see on the next screen, you might want to try the Troubleshooter option. If that doesn't help, then choose Restart Now and follow the instructions as they appear on the screen. Assuming you use the Windows 11 logon screen, you can hold the Shift key down, click the power button, and choose Restart. When the computer restarts, you'll see those two safe mode options, safe mode and safe mode with networking. Another good way to get into safe mode if the troubled computer still boots involves using system configuration. Press the Windows key, type msconfig, and press Enter. Then select the Boot tab, enable Safe Boot, and choose any options you want. The options available are no GUI boot, that simply disables any animated dots during startup, so it's not particularly useful for troubleshooting. Boot log generates a special text file that shows which drivers were loaded and not loaded during startup. This is a helpful option for troubleshooting a problem. Enable boot log and restart the computer, sign into Windows, launch the file explorer, and then open the log. I show the path to that log on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Check the file for the status of each driver. If you choose Base Video, you'll get the drivers for a standard VGA graphics card instead of the drivers for your specific video card or hardware. So this option is a useful way to troubleshoot problems with graphics. And OS Boot Information. That displays a list of drivers and other information as your computer starts up. To learn more about what you can do in Safe Mode, see the How-To Geeks How to Use Safe Mode to Fix Your Windows PC. There's a link to that article on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Safe Mode is not required to view 20 years ago, but you do need a browser because it's only on the TechBiter Worldwide website. This week, I'll look back to my favorite email application from 2003, The Bat from Moldova. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. 
There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.